writer, director, and two tattooer. I have two tattoos. <laughs> I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and uh, hair dye enthusiast. Ah, oh, yes. But lately, you haven't been going too wild. Well, I did some red. But now I'm just letting it go, man. We're, the world's ending. I don't know. But isn't now the time to just really experiment? I thought about it. I was like, I've grown my hair out so much. And like, I I want everything in me wants to go shave my head bald right now. But like, I can't. No, because I've worked. I'm it's a whim. And I've worked so hard to grow my hair out. And when it was bald, how upset was I when I was growing it out? And it was a weird shape. So I have to like think it to the future. Okay. I don't know. I also uh, sometimes it's harder to have shorter hair because you got to do more to take care of it. When you have long hair, I look I let it go. I look feral. (laughs) I like looking like maybe I just came from spending like 12 years on a deserted island and like I've never seen a scissor. And I you know what I mean? No, I understand what you're saying, but I don't know what you mean. (laughs) When I was in um, when I was in high school, I had really, really long hair down to my waist. And I I liked looking like maybe I was a mermaid Mm -hmm. or maybe maybe I was not of this earth, you know, but they ended up you just kind of look like you're Amish. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know what to do, because now that my hair is so long, it's not as thick. And now I'm like, do I grow out my undercut? But that feels like a terrible thing to go through. Are you just cutting your own bangs? Mm -hmm. But you kind of always did that, right? Yeah. And Jake shaved your undercut? Yeah, Jake shaved my undercut. I gave Jake a haircut. How'd that go? We're still together. (laughs) But does it look bad? It looks great from a distance. Oh, okay. And then if you get closer, like, I don't know how to fade. Yeah. Like, it's very short on the sides and the top is good. But then, like, the intersection between the two parts is not the best. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of my butch and transmasculine friends. They're, like, feminine partners doing that and it's a very hard line like oh, yeah. it's it's there's no fade <laughs> and he's like Yikes. a perfectionist with that stuff so it's i'm oh. really impressed that he's not mad at me all the time <laughs> about it oh that's <laughs> you know like now you have to be like a person with so many skills now you're your own chef now you're your own barber like you're doing it i know like 10 minutes into me giving him the haircut i was like i should probably look up how to do this <laughs> oh my god you didn't even watch a tutorial? He told me not to, but then I was like, I literally have no idea what I'm doing. You know, thank God he has good facial features. <laughs> this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. You should shave designs into his head like my brother used to have in the, in the 80s and 90s. And I just don't tell him? Yeah. Well, my brother, you know, like that was like the style to have like a Nike check or like a design or whatever, like a money. I just like put a AR in the back in your of hair. his head. Oh, your initials. Yeah, I brand him. <laughs> oh, my God. You just shave AR to the back of his head. That's so funny perfect, and so perfect. stupid. <laughs> well, we have a great episode for you guys this week. We're going to be talking to Jessica Wilson, who is the project lead for Fire Drill Fridays, those climate uh, protests that are led by Jane Fonda. And then we're going to be discussing unemployment. Wow, how timely. How do you handle it? Why it makes people feel so awful. 
But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Christopher London. Oh, cheerio. cheerio! Top of the morning. Mate. Nope, nope. I said top of the morning. That's not right. Why not? Because London, because that's Ireland. London is like chip, chip, cheerio. Mm, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> Christopher wants to know what advice do you have for responding to a potential change in diagnosis of mental health conditions, and what is your view on identifying with a condition without a formal diagnosis? Oh, okay. So some context. I have spent the past few years medicated to help me manage anxiety and OCD after struggling for a long time and not knowing what was wrong. I recently felt like the progress I was making had stalled. I'm pretty good day to day, but I struggle with changes to my routine. So I sought some support from a local service. Following a conversation, I've now been referred for a formal assessment for autism spectrum disorder. Mm. Being in my 30s, this is a potentially significant shift, but it may explain a lot of things. I now face around a 12-month wait before the appointment and some clarity. What advice do you have about how best to respond to this? I'm also interested in your views as identifying with the condition without the diagnosis. Is it okay or is it problematic? Oh, my God. Okay, so I went from depression and anxiety to a bipolar diagnosis, uh, which was very, very helpful in a lot of ways because it clears up some behaviors that don't necessarily match with the prior diagnosis. And it helps you be on the right medication. First and foremost, that was my experience was I was on uh, the wrong medication. I needed to be on Lamictal. I didn't need to be on just an antidepressant. Um, and so that in that way, it was huge. I don't have a problem with people identifying with things that they're not formally diagnosed with. I think there's a lot of problems to getting a diagnosis. And I think there's a lot of like class issues and race issues and and time issues to getting a diagnosis. And I think if you, you know, and you feel seen by and you feel like when you research a certain thing that it is you, I don't have a problem with people identifying as that so being in school for psychology i'm learning a lot about the fact that uh we have no idea what we're doing when it comes to diagnosing mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. i think there's this like belief that like oh yes you'll check these three boxes and then that's what you have and it's clear cut and everyone knows and you would get the same diagnosis from all the same clinicians and that's just not true like a lot of this is just like maybe it's this you know not to, and like, it depends on the doctor yeah it depends on who you meet with it depends on like what information they're getting from you at that current time you know like what their assessment is and so I really look at it much more like it's helpful to have a diagnosis in a lot of ways because if you like switch therapists it's really helpful for them to sort of like have an idea like a sense of what you have and what's going on and I think there can also be like a lot of relief in having a diagnosis and then being able to like do research on that and see other people who are experiencing what you have but at the end of the day it's more about what your symptoms are and what your behavior is and how you best address those things. You don't need the diagnosis. You just need to know what steps to take to feel your best. And a lot of times, not mainly, but a big reason to diagnose someone is for insurance reasons. Oh, say more about that. If you don't have a diagnosis, insurance will not cover your therapy. So you get like six months of like assessments. But after that, like you have to have a diagnosis of something or else like you can't bill insurance. There's also a lot of stigma when it comes to diagnoses. Like I have friends who 
they went into like a mental hospital for a little while. They checked into inpatient or they got were diagnosed with schizophrenia or certain things. And that limits like on a background check. And also like one friend like wanted to apply for TSA pre-check, but it asks, you know, have you ever been institutionalized? And if you say yes, they won't give it to you. Like there's certain things where like a diagnosis, people feel it will hinder them. And I felt that way about bipolar disorder. I was like, if I'm officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder, what doors are about to close? Mm -hmm. In the same way that doors did open because I was able to take the right medication and like I'm able to just when something's going on, I'm able to be like, I have bipolar disorder. <laughs> I know that it's so scary to suddenly like have a new diagnosis. And so now you're like, oh, I'm going to sit and wait and like in 12 months, my whole life might change because I might get this diagnosis. But you have to remember that like your life will not change. Mm -hmm. Like if let's say that you are on the spectrum, you've always been on the spectrum. That's true. Like you're you're still the exact same person. It's just like somebody taking the time to classify you officially. Yeah. But like, don't be afraid of like, oh, who, my whole identity, who I am is going to change. It's not. You're still very much you. It is tough because you identify so strongly with certain things. So like maybe you've become like a an activist in this space or you've become like a person who talks about this all the time and then to find out that that wasn't actually true is is kind of terrifying yeah and it also is like it makes you feel like oh my god did I not know myself like it's very um it's very scary I mean what if you found out tomorrow you don't have OCD well I asked my therapist this very recently um <laughs> because I looked at my billing and she diagnoses me under generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. And I asked her why she does that and if I don't have OCD. <laughs> and her answer is basically like she wouldn't diagnose people if she didn't have to. She has to for insurance purposes. And GAD is basically like the least offensive of the things to be diagnosed with if someone is Got going it. to look at your history. So that's why she gives me that. But she was like, you do have OCD. But I think about that all the time where I'm like, I all my whole identity is tied up in like being this face of OCD and like what if I don't have it? But I think I have to realize that, like, I want to get better. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like it's not like someone who's like doing activism for cancer research, like needs to have cancer the whole time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they had cancer. They know what that experience is like. And now they want better treatment for it. So, right. I don't necessarily think you need to be in the same level of a disorder in order to identify with it or be able to speak to it. Yeah. I also think sometimes like you just think I don't want this. You're like, oh, if I have depression and anxiety, that's more manageable. And that's something I can like whatever. But if your diagnosis changes to something that you don't you're like, I don't want this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You worry that it might change the way people see you like depression, and anxiety. I was like, oh, yeah, I live in L.A. Who doesn't have that? But bipolar disorder, I was like, oh, my God, people are going to think I'm scary. People are going to think like they don't know anything about it. They're going to think I have multiple personalities like which is not even in the DSM anymore. It's DID. But like there's like stereotypes about certain illnesses. And I was like, oh, my God, great. Now everybody's going to think I'm this. And like autism is one that absolutely has that because they're so terrible and so few media representations. But you're right, Allison. You, if I have bipolar disorder, I always had bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. That was always what was going on. Yeah, so I think that you have to like recognize that these diagnoses are mainly there for like not reasons for you to have them, but reasons for like mental professionals to have them for yeah. things like being able to like reference things and like giving people mm -hmm. context and being able to do studies and mm -hmm. insurance. 
versus right. like you waking up and like filling out a form of like what you have, you know? Right. Yeah. So I would really focus on that. And I would instead just focus on like, again, like your symptoms and what are the problems? What are the things that you want to work on? You know, what is the target behavior that you'd like to change? And think of it more in terms of your actual behaviors and thoughts instead of just like an overall diagnosis and how much that the importance of that diagnosis is. And if you watch a video about autism spectrum disorder and you relate to certain things in it and there's good tips or whatever in there and you feel seen, like there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And if you feel a little weird about like identifying with something before you get it, a formal diagnosis, then just keep it to yourself. Obviously, people that you're close to in your life, you might want to talk to about it because it is a big revelation that like might make a lot of things make sense. But like, yeah. you don't need to like go join autism awareness group. Like you can take your time, take your time to adjust your time. to this and you can see what happens in 12 months. But again, I would focus much more on just like your day to day behavior and how you can help yourself in, in this time. Yeah. Totally. You don't have to immediately jump into activism. Right. I promise. You can take some time to sit with it on your own. And a lot of times people are misdiagnosed with stuff. That's just a thing that happens. That happens all the time in the medical community, too, where people mm -hmm. are like misdiagnosed with all sorts of things. So, yep, it's really we're just like doing our best, but it's mm -hmm. like not hard and fast rules about stuff. So maybe that will take some pressure off of you where it's not like oh, I'm definitely this, I'm definitely that, I'm, this was mm -hmm. wrong, this was right. You know, like you might have had severe OCD at one point in your life and you might not have that anymore. And that's okay. That's great. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. All kinds of diagnoses can change. Mm -hmm. And a good therapist will be assessing you throughout treatment where mm -hmm. like they, they, it's not just the initial assessment, it's then six months later checking back in, you know, what's getting better, what's changed, did I have the right diagnosis? So it's, it's a lot more malleable than I think we think. Yeah, totally. And if certain coping mechanisms or certain medications stop working, you can always change them. Mm -hmm. And you know that. Yeah. So, well, I hope that that helped somewhat and that you take a little bit of the pressure off, but also feel free to like research autism and see what connects to you because there's no harm in that either. Yes, you're allowed to identify with something and you're allowed to also disagree with the first therapist or the first test. You can get other tests. You don't have to stop looking at, at how to better yourself or looking into um, your own conditions and the way that you behave just because one assessment says one thing. You might have the right assessment in terms of what you have, but the, there are so many different types of therapies. So mm -hmm. if what you're going through right now, it's not working maybe find a different modality, a, a different therapist who specializes in something different and that might be more effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, climate change activist, Jessica Wilson. Stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Top questions. Our guest this week is Jessica Wilson, who's the project lead for Fire Drill Fridays. Hello, Jessica. Hello. Uh, so can you tell our listeners about who you are and what Fire Drill Fridays is? Yes, absolutely. So Fire Drill Fridays is a project founded by Jane Fonda, who realizing that we are facing the biggest existential threat of our time, 
uh, wanted to help build an army of climate activists in the street demanding urgent climate action. Uh, so it's been running since October 2019. Jane moved her life to Washington, D.C. Uh, for four months and every week held uh, nonviolent direct action or civil disobedience uh, activities at Capitol Hill and um, invited lots of her famous friends and activists and ordinary citizens to join her uh, in, in demanding climate action. And uh, it moved from D.C. to California in January. Um, and we've been working with the Last Chance Alliance and a, and a lot of environmental justice and grassroots groups to help amplify their struggle for climate action and climate justice across California. Uh, and we've been rolling out monthly uh, in-person rallies, of course, until recently when we've had to pivot online. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, but we want to talk about, uh, I know Jane has a long history of political protest. I have a shirt with a picture of her mugshot on it. Awesome. So how come you guys landed at climate change? Well, I think for Jane, she read uh, some of Naomi Klein's books and was just deeply affected by it. I think, you know, climate change is the intersection of a lot of different crises and social injustices facing the planet. And of course, uh, you know, the, the, the social injustice at the heart of climate change is, is similar to what's going on right now with the COVID-19 crisis. And so we have these intersecting crises that need intersecting solutions. And at the time, you know, there was very little being done, of course, by the U.S. federal government. And there was sort of a feeling of a need of like a shot in the arm and to just build mass protest in the streets and to really build off of the incredible work being done by the youth climate activists and the movement started by Greta Thunberg uh, and very much an homage to the youth and sort of heeding that call. Like the youth have been showing up in huge numbers and asking the adults to join in saying, we need you to, we need everyone to build this climate movement. Can you speak to how climate change is a social justice issue? Absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll speak about it in the context of this current moment because it feels like everything is in the context of this current moment with COVID-19. But uh, <laughs> some of the communities that we've been working with, as an example, in South LA, in Wilmington and San Pedro, uh, are you know largely lower income communities, communities of color, and they've been living in the heart of the fossil fuel industry for many decades and facing their own existential health crisis for many decades. And, and you know, having fossil fuel industries living literally right next door to people's homes, hospitals, schools, right in the middle so that you've got toxic crap going into people's bedroom windows and making them sick. I mean, this happens all over the world, but in particular, right now talking about Wilmington and San Pedro, they've been getting sick uh, for decades, getting all kinds of respiratory uh, health problems, everything from asthma to lung cancer and everything in between. And this really grim irony of this moment is that because of the fossil fuel industry poisoning these people and poisoning these communities, they are now at a greater risk every day of contracting COVID-19 because of their pre-existing health conditions. I mean, that is some very dark irony that is kind of hard to wrap your head around. And we're seeing that replicated around the world where the fossil fuel industry's impact is putting these communities at greater risk of contracting COVID-19. I mean, it's also a social justice issue in the sense of not during a pandemic, predominantly affecting lower income or certain like communities where I think like a lot of the inaction on it 
dovetails with racism and classism pretty much. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The systemic inequality and injustice is absolutely at the heart of how the fossil fuel industry operates um, and, you know, a, a really egregious violation of human and civil rights that these governments continue to allow them to operate in the way that they do. How much of an impact do you think that Trump's rolling back all of these regulations is going to have on the environment? I, I mean, you know, we, we are at a crossroads right now where the choices that we make in this moment are going to determine, you know, not just how this next year rolls out or how our response to this, to the COVID-19 crisis rolls out, but determine what kind of future tens, hundreds of millions of people are facing for decades to come. Using this as an excuse, as an opportunity to roll back regulations is to me unconscionable. And, you know, you can see the fossil fuel industry is as well taking this as, a, as an opportunity where everyone else is just trying to protect their families and stay safe and stay home. The fossil fuel industry is, you know, rubbing its hands together, seeing this perverse opportunity for them to capitalize on on this crisis and lock themselves in, what, what they're hoping, to lock themselves in uh, to, you know, decades more of fossil fuel extraction, which we know we absolutely cannot do if we have any hope of surviving, you know, the other existential crisis that we've been facing for, for many years and decades now. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely unconscionable uh, what the fossil fuel industry is attempting to do and how... Trump and his government is is allowing it to happen. Can you just uh, speak to the specificity of what the fossil fuel industry is currently doing? Well, they are trying to capitalize on this moment um, to bail themselves out and to bail out their CEOs. On March 27th, Trump signed the $2, million, $2 trillion stimulus package. Uh, and after pressure from activists and hundreds of thousands of people who called in to, to talk to their city, state, and federal representatives. The bill did not include any direct financial support to fossil fuel companies, which was great. However, it did leave a wide loophole for companies to apply for taxpayer-funded assistance through a $500 billion fund to be allocated at the Treasury Secretary level and at that discretion. And you may have seen just recently, uh, Trump has sacked his public watchdog that was meant to provide oversight for how this money is spent. So there's going to be a lot of onus on citizens, on NGOs, and on media to really be tracking what is going on right now because there's very little oversight and very little in the way of, you know, transparency at this moment. So the problem is instead of allocating money to the individual, to healthcare, to economic stimulus uh, for individuals who are unemployed or for small businesses, uh, the money is being sent to fossil fuel companies who through their extraction of gas and oil and various uh, ways that they obtain gas have caused environmental distress, have poisoned water, have poisoned air, have caused a lot of animals to suffer and go extinct, have caused the communities nearby their sites to suffer health crises, right? Like that's basically yeah. what's happening in exchange for uh, the money that goes into the big oil and gas companies, which we've heard of before. I mean, the average person knows about the BP spill. They've seen mm -hmm. the pictures of the animals covered in oil. And the average person, I think, sees that and gets upset. And it's like, oh, my God, that bird is dying. It's covered in oil. We know that this is bad. But on the day to day, I don't think we see 
what the oil and gas companies are doing other than when we go and fill up our cars and and get gas for our cars. I don't think that like we take into account the day to day of what is affected. Yeah, I absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And all of that, that list of, of ways that the fossil fuel industry has poisoned our world. You know, I would add to that, like, has poisoned our democracy. And, you know, that's part of why this is kind of kept in the shadows. I mean, I think it's interesting to look at the policies of the Trump administration and, and, and most government administrations in terms of climate change and COVID-19, which is denial and delay. It's the same, just mm-hmm. in a shorter time frame with more immediate and visceral outcomes. Um, and, you know, in this moment, it's splashed across every front page of every newspaper as opposed to hidden on page 13 or in the science section. Is the thinking that I make money off of these companies, I make money uh, off of oil and gas sales or trades. And also, you know, if you're in Congress, you are hyped or hindered by lobbyists from these groups that have a lot of power and a lot of voting power because the people under them make money from this gas and and oil uh, extraction. Like it all sort of comes to like short term greed and short term power versus like thinking long term about everyone else and also the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. I think that's exactly what what it is. But I, it's also this sort of way of working that has been going on with the between the political system and the fossil fuel industry and big corporations across the board for, you know, it seems like forever now. And, you know, Fire Drill Fridays and Greenpeace and a lot of other groups have been trying to break this relationship, separate oil and state and and get, um, you know, our elected officials and anyone running for office to commit to not taking money from these interests. Because, of course, if you're taking huge amounts of money, like the lion's share of your contributions come from these corporate interests. I mean, of course, you're going to be beholden to them. And it's interesting how this is interpreted by the American public. Often, you know, it's hard to break through. Like, you you think that this would be a thing that would engender so much outrage that our, our politics are held hostage to these private corporate interests, private corporate interests the likes of which have been poisoning our planet and people and ecosystems for decades now. And yet, for some reason, that doesn't seem to offend that many people in the way that we think it would. Like, the, there seems to be a feeling of, well, that's just, that's how the world works. That's, that's how this stuff happens. Yeah, of course, corporates and politicians are in bed together. Um, and we really want to break that perception. And we think this is a good moment for that as well, to remind the world and to remind the people in power that we need to put workers and people first, not bail out these massive industries and invest in a just recovery and a just transition. I mean, this really could be that moment. This is a moment in time that will never come around again. And there's a lot of pressure on it because how the decisions and the choices that we make today will affect not just how this pandemic is responded to, but will will set the course for climate action or inaction for for decades to come. Do you think that this pandemic is an opportunity to finally prove that climate change is influenced by man? The fact that like the air has become so much cleaner and that there's like so much less pollution. Do you think that this is finally going to like give like clear cut evidence that man is causing all of these problems? Definitely the vast majority of scientists 
I've been fully aligned for quite some time now on the man-made source of climate change. I don't think that's, for me, it's sort of a little bit like having like having a flat earth conversation. Like that ship has so far sailed. Because the earth is flat, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. Why would we even, yeah, yeah, why yeah, would yeah, we even yeah. talk about it anymore? Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> I think the idea that humans and nature are separate is the wrong way to think about it. You know, we need both a healthy human society and a healthy environment. And there, there are ways that we can get there. You know, we can confront the sources of pollution and the systemic inequalities and injustices and make investments in public institutions. They're guided by science, guided by extra experts in our collective decision making. And I think, you know, maybe the, the one way that maybe there is a, a benefit, if you will, even though I don't really like saying that to um, the climate crisis is that, you know, I feel that scientists are being listened to and respected in a new way right now, mm. um, particularly in a new way vis-a-vis the Trump administration. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they do have a, they have had a sim- similar policies for both COVID and climate, which is deny and delay. Uh, and we're seeing that biting them in the butt right now on COVID-19. And I mean, I don't want to, <laughs> I, I don't want to have to live for them to, to have to eat their words on climate because at that point the ship will have failed. Like we need urgent action on these converging crises now. Do you feel like any countries are responding correctly and are doing enough in terms of climate change? Oh, sure. There, there are absolutely some examples of, of leadership around the world. And I think, you know, seeing what happened at the UN Climate Summit in Paris a few years ago, which was like a really genuine coming together of global leaders to try to finally address this problem. I mean, there was a shift in consciousness around that and the shift in priorities Trump pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement was I mean, obviously absolutely ridiculous, but in other ways, it's kind of galvanized the rest of the global community. You know, not many, not many other global leaders want to be like Trump. Oh, they don't? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a few. So we wanted to ask, what does effective activism look like today? Because obviously, like the the taking to the streets to protest has been a long held tradition um, and getting arrested uh, during those protests has been a long held tradition. And you mentioned briefly people calling their their representatives. Can you talk a little bit about effective activism when you can gather and then effective activism when you can't gather and what actually has caused change? The only thing that has ever truly caused long lasting change is people power is the power of people coming together and demanding things from their elected officials and the people power combined with civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action, which is, you know, putting your body on the line, breaking unjust laws to shine a light on it. And that goes back to, you know, everyone from Rosa Parks to Martin Luther King to, you know, the five day work week and Mm -hmm. the suffragette movement, women's right to vote. I mean, none of these major societal shifts or changes happened without huge groups of people standing up and demanding change. Uh, and so there's, there are similar levers to us involved in online world as they are in offline. I mean, obviously the, the obvious one is that we can't come together in public spaces right now, but there are a lot of ways that you can make your voice heard um, from home. And we had a really great call uh, on a Fire Drill Friday's chat between Jane Fonda and Senator Ed Markey about what feels most impactful as a senator or a member of Congress in terms of messaging and, and the ways that you can get through. And number one is absolutely 
pick, picking up the phone and, and getting on the phone with someone. If you can't talk to a person, leave a message. Tell them what your name is, what town you're from. You know, speak to speak as one of their constituents who is voting, and we'll be voting for them. the The other good way to do that would be to tweet, to do social media, tweet and tag different elected officials. Um, get your hashtags in there and make sure that they're following and hearing from you and, and seeing the scale of pressure. And of course, emailing and signing petitions. You know, the, the number one way this year feels like voting, registering to vote and then vote at every level. It's not just about the presidential election. There's so many steps between now and then that people can get involved in and help shape uh, the kind of country and the kind of future that they want. Would you say that like one of the biggest differences between reelecting Trump and having any Democratic president would be climate change? Oh, my God, there's so many issues, you know, from from queer rights and trans rights and justice for refugees and immigrants. Like there are a lot of issues on the table beyond climate change. But I would also say uh, connected to climate change. I mean, we are in a moment of intersectional struggle and our solutions to these challenges must also be intersectional. I very much see climate change as not just an environmental justice issue, but a social justice issue. I think people see climate change as far off. Mm. Like, oh, I'll be dead by the time it matters, Mm -hmm. which is becoming less and less true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I hate to break it to you. So how do you get people interested um, who might be like, this doesn't affect me? I've worked in the climate movement for 15 years now and we've been sort of having that conversation for 15 years about this seems so far off and I think a lot of us have experienced a bit of a feeling of shock over the past years as those things that we said would happen started happening I mean we're talking about Mm -hmm. mass superstorms you know people losing their homes flooding and drought on on the scale we've never seen before, massive wildfires, the extinction of billions of living creatures. I mean, I, I feel personally quite a level of shock and like, how, how do I cope with this? These are the things that we, you know, we knew were coming or we thought we were preparing ourselves for, but you can't really prepare yourself for that. And I think, you know, it's almost like human beings aren't hardwired to respond to something that feels like a far off distant threat. You know, you put a gun to someone's head and you say, run, they're going to run. But you think if in 10 years, someone's going to put a gun to your head, what do you do with that? But seeing all of this happening now and also, you know, talking and working with a lot of uh, youth activists in climate impacted parts of the world, um, like a young woman, Vanessa Nakate from Uganda, who's hurt, like if every time she would hear that question of, you know, what's it going to be like in 10 years? Her answer is, it's like that right now where I live. Mm -hmm. And so we have this sort of notion of like um, sacrifice zones or the idea that there are places in the world where it's okay for this to happen. And it it seems like a far off threat as long as it's happening far away. Um, But I think we've seen some massive extreme weather events across the U.S. over recent years that have brought that a little bit closer home. And I think I think people need hope. I think that, you know, they can't just look at these news headlines and feel a sense of inevitability like this is this is just gonna a thing that is going to happen to me and there is nothing I can do to protect my family and that needs to change I think there are things that people can do and what we need is urgent climate action and a rapid decarbonization of our 
energy systems and of our economy. And we are poised beautifully for that right now. Like weirdly, everything is changing so fast. The world has kind of stopped. Industries are shifting. Like is, how can this be an opportunity for us to lock in the economies of the future and invest in a sustainable, renewable way of life that will feed us for decades and centuries to come, as opposed to locking us into runaway climate change and more of those extreme weather events and more drought and more loss of life and more massive migration crises. I mean, when you lay it out like that as a choice between these two potential futures, to me, <laughs> there is no choice. It's an absolute no-brainer. And the thing that really is standing between this moment and that potential future is the fossil fuel industry. And that's why we've got to break those chains between the fossil fuel industry and government. Do you think that we are at a place where we don't need fossil fuel anymore? Or do you think it's something that needs to just be tapered off? I think there's a lot of really smart people and scientists out there who know more about this than me who have laid out the path <laughs> to, <laughs> um, to how we can get this done. You know, it's absolutely possible. We need like a, a huge investment in renewable energy and we need good jobs. Like we need to prioritize workers and not let them just take the brunt of these failing industries, because these industries, like they, they're on their way out. There's no two ways about it. They have to be on their way out. They already are in a lot of places. And workers should not be the ones that are left on the hook to feel that brunt. There's a lot of potential for us to create good, green, clean jobs that are well-paying, that are unionized, that come with great benefits where people can support and feed their families without, you know, not just risking the climate, but without putting themselves at risk. Uh, we need that huge yeah. investment now. Before we move on to our game show portion, uh, do you have hope? Do you think that, that we still have time to, to take this on and to make a big change? That's such a great question because, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. About a year and a half or so ago, I really did not. Like, things were looking grim, really grim. Mm -hmm. And and I wasn't sure where to look or what to do with that. It's like, you know, is this the time to get a cabin in the woods and just, you know, forget all about it. But then the youth movement started growing and I found that such a cup filling community to be a part of. I mean, not only do they have like the most contagious fires in their belly, uh, but they just do not see failure as an option. And having the opportunity to work with a lot of them over the last year and a half, which was a really nice kind of on-ramp to working with Fire Drill Fridays, which is, you know, an answer to the call from the youth. It totally changed my perspective. I feel lifted. I feel like it's going to be a hard fight. But yeah, I believe we're going to win. We have to win. There really are no other options. Thank you. You made me feel better. <laughs> oh, good. And hopefully you've ignited, you know, our listeners to be more active and to not give up on this. Yeah, I just think like one of the problems with the, the framing of the climate crisis is that people are made to feel that they're at fault or that their life choices are causing this, right? Like, oh, we wouldn't make all of these cars if you didn't buy all of them. And, you know, how did you get to that climate protest? Did you skateboard there? I mean, and that is all like absolute... BS and it's industry jargon designed to make people feel culpable and 
and guilty and part of the problem and therefore stifle um, public protest and opposition. And I, I think that's, those are some really problematic narratives that need to be torn down. And we just need to change these stories. It's way too late for us to recycle our way out of this problem. Like, of course, everyone should do whatever they can, wherever they are, and whatever they can varies widely. It's not so much about individual action at this point as it is about larger political action. And I think a lot of activism is framed as like, you're, you need to change what you're doing when honestly, what you do is great, but the systemic problems and the changes that need to happen are not uh, someone living in poverty recycling. It's uh, the yeah. government not giving a $5 million bailout to a fossil fuel company. That's what it really is. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a problematic narrative that needs to be undone or challenged. The climate change crisis was created by individuals and it can be solved by individuals. That's absolutely not where we are at. We need systemic change. We need better choices for people. We need better options, sustainable, green, clean, renewable options across all of our economic sectors. And these are things that are not just possible, but that people could thrive in, that could create tens of millions of healthy jobs. And that's, that's the future that we're pushing for and that I truly believe is possible. Thank you so much. Uh, would you like to play a very stupid game show? <laughs> I would love to play a very stupid game show. Wonderful. So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you some hypothetical situations. You can ask any questions you want. You tell me what you would do in those hypothetical situations, and then I just kind of decide if I like your answer. <laughs> okay. It's a thrilling game. It's um, science, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Our first game is America's favorite game show, would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your spouse of 40 years has been putting the recycling in the regular trash can <laughs> after breaking the recycling bin during a rigorous game of driveway basketball 10 years earlier. Would you stay with this cheater? They have never physically cheated on you in any way. FYI. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I've experienced something similar to this with my now ex-husband. Uh, so, like... <laughs> It maybe wasn't the he reason. He didn't recycle, so you got divorced? I mean, it wasn't not the reason. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Part of I mean, a here's bigger the, picture. Here's the problem. If you just if you broke the recycling bin and then you don't understand that you can just get another recycling bin, then there's a lot more going on that I don't know that I can help you with. So I'm Wait, gonna go. wait. It wasn't because he broke the recycling bin, though. It was because He'd been lying about recycling and actually throwing it in the garbage, right? Okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. He's too <laughs> lazy to get a new recycling bin. Easier to get a new husband. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Get a new husband. Kick him out. <laughs> Jessica's right. Divorce. Put him in the trash. Literally. Yeah, get rid of him. Look, you guys have to have the same morals. And I think what Jessica's getting at about her divorce is that they did not see eye to eye on environmentalism. So he got to go. <laughs> I support it. Jessica wins. <laughs> Yay. Okay, our next game. Is this person an alien or just rude? While at a climate change benefit, a major benefactor takes the stage to give a speech and simply says, the earth will be completely uninhabitable in 123 years. 
So please tip your wait staff. Is this person <laughs> an alien or just rude? Ooh, uh, uh, I'm gonna go and with that's the whole speech. Just poor, poorly informed. Wait, that's not an option. Uh, rude. Why is he rude? Well, I mean, I feel like basically the point of that speech was to tip your weight staff. And I feel like manipulating people into doing that with some kind of made up existential threat of 123 years is not a great way to increase tips. Is it made up or does this person know something we don't know because they're in fact an, an alien? alien? They were an alien? <laughs> they were an alien the whole time. And why do they know this? Because they can um, time travel and they know that in 123 years, uh, another alien species is going to come and blow us up. So then it doesn't have anything to do with climate change. No, it doesn't. So there's nothing we could have done. Maybe we like completely reversed everything and the earth was beautiful and we were like, yay, we achieved it. And then just then aliens came down and killed us all. Yep. That's why in the meantime, you should tip your weight staff. Oh, my God. <laughs> ah, that's so frustrating. We were like so good as a society and then something was just totally out of our hands. I know. Life's a bitch. <laughs> you know, or everyone could have a living wage that wouldn't require them to be subsidized by tipping. Just putting that out there. Oh, a twist. I'm on this platform. <laughs> <laughs> Our final game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child gets in the habit of buying a water bottle at school every day, despite you giving them a reusable one. Mm. After getting fed up, you create a fake news article about a teen who has died from drinking out of too much plastic. You print the fake article and give it to them, scaring them into using the reusable water bottle. Are you a terrible parent? They lose the reusable water bottle at least once a week, and you end up spending hundreds of dollars replacing it over and over. Why? I would just tie it to their wrist or something. Why do they keep losing it? They're just not good at keeping their water bottle. Get them a, a carabiner and put it on their, their um, pants. Absolutely. What are you talking about? It's a carabiner. Have you ever it's... seen anyone? <laughs> yeah. That would hit your leg every step you took. Doesn't matter. Get a carabiner, attach it to your pants. And it's a good way of starting to kind of indoctrinate those young folks into eventually being Greenpeace activists that, you know, scale oil rigs and whatnot. You know, carabiner is a big, big part of our work. Oh, yeah. You got to use carabiners to climb to the top of things. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and to that parent who came up with that fake news article, I would say respect. You know, these are tough times. You got to do what you got to do. Okay, I, you know, I didn't see it going this way, but I support it. <laughs> also, you give a kid enough carabiners, they become a lesbian. And that's a great life. <laughs> Absolutely. What more could any parent want? Exactly. That's not problematic at all, Gabby. No, you listen, when you see a carabiner lesbian, you know problems are getting solved. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that this big problem gets solved soon. Uh, by listening to everything Jessica said. Yeah, and if we had more lesbians and more queer folks making these decisions, we'd probably be in a better position. A fucking men. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about what you do and wh where they can find out more about how to help and get involved? So we're right now building a whole kind of network of ways that people can get involved from home uh, and help keep the pressure on our elected officials to address these converging crises that we're facing right now. So please head to firejoelfridays.com 
forward slash volunteer. And there are like six to seven different ways that you can get involved and apply your unique skill sets uh, to helping, helping us and helping Jane build an army of people for the climate. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Amazing. it. We'll put that link in the description of the episode. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. Happy first podcast to you. Thank you. I can't wait to hear it. You guys are <laughs> awesome and very funny. Thank you so much. And keep uh, rocking out those great podcasts. I love them. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Bye. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about unemployment. Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby. That was beautiful. Yeah, I really hit like a baritone there. I I was here for it. Thank you so much. My dog hates when I say things in that low voice. How do you know he hates it? Because he I he gets upset if I go beans. He's like furious. Oh, he doesn't like it. He's next to me. Oh, I don't know why. And then my partner who's on testosterone was like so upset and was like, oh, my God, if my voice gets deeper, will beans hate me? And I was like, yeah, you should go off testosterone for that reason. <laughs> I think he might be projecting that he hates it. Uh, yeah, probably. And But also I was like, I was like, I love that you love beans so much that you're willing to go off testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> so this week I picked sort of a bummer of a topic but i feel like it's very relevant yeah um and that is unemployment oh yeah shy done just applied for it again so my sister works as a waitress and host and uh, you know those jobs are very nebulous and so she's had to apply for it a few times and now her cafe is closed because of of the coronavirus so uh she's she's applying for all the stuff that they're doing now the like uh unemployment stuff that's happening now what i find interesting is there is this safety net available for people, but there's a stigma attached to it. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't want to apply for unemployment or they don't think to or they feel bad about doing it because they're like, no, 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 no. I'm I'm not that person. And one cool thing about Cheyenne is that she's never cared. Like she's always just like, no, the money's there. Why would I not take the money? Like right. I'm going to apply for unemployment. But I remember the first time I applied for unemployment, I felt like a piece of shit. And you have to just get rid of that on top of what you're doing. Like, you just have to be like, this is here for this exact reason. Like, do not feel bad. The government has enough money, I promise. They could even give you more money, I promise. (laughs) And I really admire people who are like, I need help. Because it's a thing about asking for help that you don't like. I think also right now, like, recognizing that First of all, it never has anything to do with your value as a person. But right, right now, there's a global pandemic happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. You it know, super has nothing to do it, with like, your value as a this person. This is like unprecedented amounts of people are filing for unemployment. Right. So many people's jobs are like up in the air. Mm-hmm. And if like every single moment of every single day you feel stress about that, that's normal. Yes, completely normal. And even I just want to say even before all of this, being unemployed has such like a a negative whatever to it but again it's it's a capitalist idea 
and you are not only worth what you're producing for society mm-hmm. and you can't put on top of the stress of like, how do I pay bills? How do I do this? Your entire self-worth into being unemployed because I've done that when I graduated from college and I didn't have a job for the first like six months. I felt like I was like a ghost. Like mm-hmm. I was like, I don't even live. I don't even exist in the world. And anytime I've been like, quote unquote, unemployed or like fired or whatever, I've been like, oh my God, now I don't even deserve to live. And like, you cannot intertwine those things. You just can't. You have to reframe it as, Mm -hmm. okay, this is a situation where right now I don't have a job and that's it. You know, like you don't then go A to C of like, and I'm worthless and I'll never have a job again and I'm going to die on the streets. You know, like that's it. Like, just like, don't let your brain go past like the reality of like, yes, you do not have a job right now. It is so hard because one, you're worried about where you're going to get money from, which I, I mean, when you don't have any money and there's no way of getting more money, I've tried really hard, obviously, like on my podcast and in my book to describe that feeling. And I it's so hard to describe because it, it you just are like magic question mark. Like you don't know. Mm-hmm. Like you it becomes it starts to seem so impossible to ever get money. Like you start your brain goes to these crazy places. Like you think about like, oh, just sell your plasma or like just do this or just do that or just apply here. When I didn't have a job. I applied to so many restaurants, to so many stores. Like I would go, I remember going and and trying to see about plasma or or whatever or selling your eggs or something and it's like a process, right? And I think like people who haven't been through that desperation, they're like just do this, just do that. And like whew, it's like applying to jobs is a full-time job. Getting rejected from jobs is a full-time job. You feel like shit every single time. I remember applying to uh, BB Kings and they were like, no, we're not hiring. And I had a friend that worked there, like all these things. It beats you down so much to apply to so many places and not hear anything back or to not even get the job that you know that some of your friends are like, well, just work here. Like I talked to a bunch of high school kids who were trying to get their first jobs and they told me that Chipotle is the way to go. (laughs) So I don't know if that's helpful to people, but Chipotle hires. But, and and we'll take people with no experience. Right. But right now you can't even apply for jobs. Chipotle is not hiring. No, of course not. So like now there's this added thing of like, I can't, you can't even try. Yes. So, and you can try to apply to things that are remote, but it's getting even more competitive now, harder. They're eliminating jobs. Right. And so what does that mean, you know, to like wake up and to be unemployed and to not even be able to search for a job? Like the real task here right now is mm-hmm. is still getting through the day, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's it's applying for unemployment. Yeah, it's like actually going through the bullshit that is that application, despite right. how insanely difficult they make it. Yeah, it's trying to get that. And then it's just saying, OK, This is an insane time. This is like as if it was World War II and Mm -hmm. there were no jobs. And so all of the bullshit that you would put on yourself for being unemployed at a different time, which you shouldn't even do anyway, you just have to not. And I think that, again, this is like pointing to a lot of like systemic issues of the fact that like we're fucked and the government isn't really going to help us the way other governments are helping their citizens. Yeah, 
I think you can't be afraid to ask for help. There's people right. that are like opening GoFundMes. There's people that are doing giveaways on Twitter for money. I've been doing a lot of those. And if you wish to be a, a generous benefactor and give me money to give out, there's been a three people who have done that so far. So hit me up. But, you know, one person that I spoke to was like, I'm doing these money giveaways. And one person was like, I don't have a bank account. And there's so many people who are not, who don't have bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And they work in a cash economy. And like, what do you do? What do you do then? I mean, you know, and the answer oftentimes is sex work. Let's say you were doing sex work. Now you can't see clients. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to translate that to the internet? Or you were giving plasma. Now you can't really go do that. And I don't think we even saw that coming. I think we were always like, no, these things will always exist. You'll always be able to like, thrift your clothes or whatever and now it's like no <laughs> yeah i mean i think that the big thing is that recognizing how bananas what's happening is it's unprecedented and, we yeah, were so like, not ready it's literally an unprecedented event and the fallout is going to be unprecedented and all that we can do is just like do our best to adapt like we cannot hold ourselves or society to the same standards that existed four months ago yeah, we absolutely thought that certain professions would always be around. We thought that. We were like, there's no world in which this isn't a thing. And then like, guess what? It's not a thing. Like, <laughs> find a new job. Like, it's it's wild. Yeah. All of this stuff is going to affect you in a big way. Mm -hmm. And that's normal. Yeah. And like, you can't think like, well, this is going to be it forever. You know, maybe there'll be more job openings. Maybe jobs will be created because like people are going online. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's the other big part is not trying to predict the future and not assuming mm -hmm. that this means that you'll be unemployed forever. Yeah. As humans, we have like adapted and recovered and changed from many situations mm -hmm. and many different points in time. And like that will happen. We just don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah, my partner makes all of their money from touring, all of it. And they can't tour. Mm -hmm. And they're worried that they're not going to be able to tour for a year. So what yeah. does that look like? Well, they've been doing shows on Crowdcast, selling merch more. They've been doing concerts on Instagram Live and stuff. But they're like, wow, I've I've not, there hasn't been a year that I haven't toured since they were like 18. Wow. And so like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if this was helpful, but I just wanted to give a space, <laughs> like acknowledge what is happening. Whatever you need to do during this time, like do not judge yourself and do not judge other people. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Tamika, want to come on in and share your thoughts on this uplifting episode? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Allison. This is sort of a topic we can't solve, but it's good to acknowledge this is happening because it's going to be really difficult and a very serious reality, I think, for people for a long time. Um, and I've also been unemployed or underemployed when you make basically nothing. I think the advice I would probably give to myself back then is like, just be prepared for it to last longer than you expect. Um, Cause there's this thing where you, you feel like, okay, I, I felt terrible all this time, but I know I need to not feel terrible so that I can keep trying and have optimism and, and hope and, you know, keep applying. And there's just like disappointment after disappointment that happened. And you can't really predict for how long that's going to happen, but you have to keep picking yourself up to keep trying because that's the only way that you actually get a livable wage these days. No, it's really hard because it's so much rejection. For sure. And it's like giving people advice generally 
isn't super helpful because it's so dependent on your circumstances and your personality and how well you adapt to change and how much grit you have. And where you live and the economy and so many factors. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to, to know that, you know, the basic stuff that you guys are talking about though, is that, um, you know, don't feel shame for seeking out, um, any benefits, you know, they're there to actually help you and don't feel bad for feeling bad. Those basic stuff, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, so hopefully this, this helps some listeners. Yeah. I mean, it's very scary because I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter about people that are like l- going to be homeless. Like that's the, that's what's yeah. happening. And it's such a failure of our institutions and our government and, it's just like highlights how little we had in place to protect us at all, which I'm sure many people already knew. Mm-hmm. So what were your favorite parts of the episode? Uh, I liked Jessica talking about public action and political action and the ways that it can take place, not just in person, because I, I, I really love political protest, but I also know that it's inaccessible to a lot of people. And so I think like, calling and hearing that like calling and tweeting and tagging does work is really helpful to our listeners. Yeah. And that Mm -hmm. that she's been so inspired by the younger generation is wonderful to hear and that she hasn't given up hope is, is encouraging. (laughs) Yeah. I actually really like your um, response to the international question when you're talking about like getting a, a mental health diagnosis and talking about the mental journey, how, someone can think that it changes how they see themselves, but the way you were sort of reframing that and saying, you know, it's a better, it's an opportunity to, to better understand yourself rather than you thinking that it's changed you somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's what I thought you guys were saying. No, it is. It is what we were saying. It is what we were saying. <laughs> I just have a lot to think about. Like I, you know, I think the climate change conversation is always hard because you have to like, it feels like you're shaking someone and going like, listen, just care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. and then I feel the same way about unemployment. So I don't know how to, I'm not a, as good as Jessica Wilson. I, my instinct is to just grab people and shake them. And I guess you can't really do that. You have to politically protest. Well, you can't shake them because we, social distancing. Oh, you can't shake them because of social distancing. You're right. You're right. I'll take my hands <laughs> off you. I'll shake you from six feet away. What do we rate the episode? I rate it 10 out of 10 broken recycling bins. <laughs> I rate it... Uh, seven out of eight Gretas. Oh, yeah. All the youth activists, baby, you guys are the the future. (laughs) Thank you. Tamika, we didn't forget about you. You have to do (laughs) it. I rate it a billion new jobs with livable wages. (laughs) It weighs on me a lot. It weighs on me a lot. (laughs) Just raise the minimum wage, guys, and also provide better safety nets. And, I mean, if this doesn't open people's eyes up to how much needs to change, I don't know what will. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Jessica Wilson for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. I think this podcast helps people. Let's let's all stay hopeful. Yeah, we've brought a lot of guests on that I hope will educate and I hope will give people hope. And that's all that we can do. Stay hopeful, guys. 
Stitcher.